you're in the situation that you're in right now and that's not good enough. And so that's another thing that's kind of interesting about people is they're chronically dissatisfied with the way things are. Well, that's okay because you wouldn't be motivated to move forward if you weren't chronically dissatisfied with the way that things are. But it's kind of annoying, you know, because you might think, well, why aren't you just happy with what you have? And the answer to that is generally because I don't know if it's going to last. And so that's part of it. And the other is, well, if the situation shifted a bit, maybe I'd have more options. And some of that would be, it would last longer. It'd be more stable. It'd be more promising. And so you can say, well, you should be satisfied with what you have. But it's kind of really a stupid thing in some sense to tell human beings. Because no matter what you have, it isn't going to solve your fundamental problem. So the problem isn't going away. And you can't just fool yourself into saying, well, what I have is great. You could say... I could have a hell of a lot less, and that would be bad, and most people have a lot less than me, and I should be grateful for what I have, that's fine, that's perfectly reasonable, but you're stuck with this chronic sense of unfinished business, and the reason for that is, well, you're permanently vulnerable, so how, how could it be otherwise? And even if you've got your problem solved, then there's three or four people in your family that by no means have got their problem solved, so the problem of problems never goes away. That's a good thing to know existentially, too, because it helps you calibrate your life properly. Because you might be thinking, well, if I just got everything together, you know, I'd hit some plateau of satiation and stability, and, and then I would just be there. It's like, no, that's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. So you might as well just forget about that. Well, maybe you want to push your damn rock up a hill. You know, it's going to roll down again. It's like, what are you going to do? Just sit there by the rock? It's okay to be active, even, even if the problem you're trying to solve is not fundamentally solvable. That doesn't mean it isn't worth trying to solve. And you guys should listen to this, because I know what I'm talking about. If you happen to be creative, if you're a songwriter, or another kind of musician, or an artist, or, or, or any of the other number of things that you might be, find a way to make money, and then practice your craft on the side, because you'll starve to death otherwise. Now, some, for some of you, that won't be true, but it's a tiny minority. Your best bet is to find a job that will keep body and soul together and parse off some time that you can pursue your creative thing because then, well, as a long-term strategy, medium to long-term strategy, it's a better one. You know, you hear very frequently people say things like everyone's creative. It's like, that's wrong, okay? It's wrong. It's just as wrong as saying that everyone's extroverted. First of all, you have to be pretty damn smart to be creative because otherwise you're just going to get to where other people have already got and that's not creative by definition. So, so being fast and being out there at the front of things really makes a difference. And then you also have to have these divergent thinking capabilities. And that's part of your trait structure. And creative people are really different than non-creative people. You know, partly because, for example, they're highly motivated to do creative things and to experience novelty and, and to chase down aesthetic experiences and to attend movies and to read fiction and to go to museums and to enjoy poetry. And, and, and to enjoy music that's not conventional music, for example. These aren't trivial differences. And so it's a real, it's a real misstatement to make the proposition that everyone's creative. It's just simply not the case. It's a matter of wishful thinking. It's like saying that everyone's intelligent. It's like, well, if everyone's intelligent, then the, the term loses all of its meaning. Because any term that you can apply to every member of a category has absolutely no meaning. You know, the other thing you want to be thinking about here is that don't be thinking that creativity is such a good thing. It's a high-risk, high-return strategy. There's creative people in this room, man. You guys are going to have a hell of a time monetizing your creativity. It's virtually impossible. It's really, really difficult because 
First of all, let's say you make an original product. You think the world will beat a pathway to your door if you build a better mousetrap. It's like, that's complete rubbish. It isn't, it isn't true in the least. If you make a good creative product, you've probably solved about 5% of your problem. Because then you have marketing, which is insanely difficult, and then you have sales, and then you have customer support, and then you have to build an organization. And you have to, if it's really novel, you have to tell people what the hell the thing is. You know, we built this future authoring program, right? It's available for people online. So how do you market that? No one knows what that is. And that's a real problem. If you write a book, well, then you have the problem that another million people have also written a book. But if you produce something that's completely new and doesn't have a category, people can't search for it online. How are they going to find it? And then you have pricing problems. And it's really unbelievably difficult to produce something creative and then monetize it. And even worse, if you're the creative person, let's say you have a spectacular invention. You've got no money, right? You've got no customers. Th those are big problems. And so maybe you go and you find a venture capitalist. We start with family and friends because that's how it works. You raise money for your product. You raise money from your family and friends. That's assuming you have family and friends that have some money and that they're going to give it to you. And most people aren't in that situation. So it's a terrible barrier right off the bat. And then, of course, you're putting your family and friends at substantial financial risk because the probability that your stupid idea is going to make money is virtually zero, even if it's a really brilliant idea. And so then let's say, well, you get past family and friends and you get venture capital, capitalists involved because that's often the next step. Or an angel investor. That's, there's, there's steps in building a business. Family and friends, angel investor. That's some rich guy that you happen to meet some manner, some way who's, who's into this sort of thing and is willing to provide you with some money to get your product off the ground. Well, how much of your product is that person going to take? Well, most of it. Most of it. And no wonder, because, you know, you don't have any money. How are you going to bargain for control over your product? He'll just say, well, do you want the money or not? And if your answer is no, then he'll go and do something else with his money. It's not like there's no shortage of things that you can do with your money. There's a million things you can do with it. So you're not in a great bargaining position. And then if you get venture capitalists involved, they'll take another big chunk. And maybe if they're not very straight with you, they'll just throw you out. Because maybe by that point in the company's development, you're nothing but a pain in the neck. Because what do you know about marketing and sales and customer service and building an organization and running a business? Like, you don't have a clue. So why do they need you? So even if you're successful at generating a new idea and you put it into a business, the probability that you, as the originator of the, of the idea, are going to make some money from it is very, very low. So don't be thinking that creativity is such a, is something you would want to curse yourself with. Now, you know, it's not all bad because it, it opens up avenues of experience for creative people that aren't available to people who aren't creative. But it definitely is a high-risk, high-return strategy. You know, so the overwhelming probability is that you will fail. But a small proportion of creative people succeed spectacularly. And so it's like a lottery in some sense. You're probably going to lose. But if you don't lose, you could win big. And that keeps a lot of creative people going. But also, they don't really have much choice in it. Because if you're a creative person, you're like a, a, a fruit tree that's, that's bearing fruit. So you don't really have, you can suppress it, but it's very bad for you. You know, the creative people I've worked with is if they're not creative, they're miserable. So they have to do it. But, and, and you know, there's real joy and, and pleasure in it and, and psychological utility. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's an intelligent, it's certainly not a conservative strategy for moving forward through life. What does it mean to think creatively? It's something like this. You imagine that I toss you out an idea 
and there's some probability that when I toss you that idea that that will trigger off other ideas in your imagination. So you can think about it as a threshold issue. If you're not very creative, I'll throw you an idea and hardly any other ideas will be triggered. And the ones that will be triggered are going to be very closely associated with that initial idea. So let's say I tossed each of you an idea and I asked you to think, tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Okay, so what we would see first is that the first thing that comes to mind in, like, in all likelihood would be shared by many of you. Okay, so then you could think about that as a common response, right? And so that's a less creative response. And then there'll be some things that come to mind for you that are, that are so idiosyncratic that you're the only person that thinks it and no one can understand it. Well, that, that's also not exactly creative because the thing that you, for something to be creative, it has to be novel and useful at the same time. That's sort of a rough definition. Creative, uh, something creative is novel and useful. So you, anyway, so you can think of, you, you get thrown an idea and there's some probability that that will co-activate other ideas. And if it co-activates many other ideas, that's like fluency. And if it co-activates ideas that are quite distant from the original idea, something like that, and you could, you could track distance by comparing it to, to probability that other people have generated it, then that's also another indication of creativity. So they have to be unlikely, many unlikely responses that are useful. That's what creativity is, roughly speaking. And then you can fractionate it into different dimensions. So that's creative thinking. But then creative achievement would be the ability to take those original ideas and then actually to implement them in the world. And that's obviously much more different than merely being creative. Imagine what happens when you play Monopoly. What happens? Everybody has the same amount of money to begin with, right? So then you start playing. It's basically a random game. Well, some people start to win a bit and some people start to lose a bit. And then if you win, the probability that you'll keep winning starts to increase. And if you lose, your vulnerability increases as you lose. And then maybe you've got, say, six people playing Monopoly. Soon one person has zero. What happens when they have zero? They're out of the game. So zero is a weird number because when you hit zero, you're out of the game. So, so then if you keep playing, people start to stack up at zero, right? What happens at the end of the game? One person has all the property and all the money and everyone else has none. Right, that, that's what happens if you play an iterated trading game to its final conclusion. It's not a consequence necessarily of structural inequality. It's built into the system at a deeper level than that. So, you know, people talk about all the time about how unfair it is that 1% of the population has the vast amount of the money and 1% of the 1% has most of that money and 1% of the 1% of the 1% has most of that money. It's, a, it's an inevitable conclusion of iterated trading games, and we don't know how to fight it. We don't know how to take from the people who have and move it to the bottom without it instantly moving back up to the top. Different people, maybe, but still back up to the top. Because even the 1% churns a lot. Like, I think you have a 10% chance, if I remember correctly, you have a 10% chance of being in the top 1% for at least one year of your life, and a 40% chance of being in the top 10% for at least one year in your life. That's in Canada and the US, it's less so in Europe. So there's a fair bit of churning at the top end. It's not the same people all the time who have the money, but it is a tiny fraction of the people all the time who have all the money. 